This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. Welcome to Season 3 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we talk with Jacob Baskin, the CTO and co-founder of Coord, a company that is doing digital mapping of the curb that allows companies and cities to think about how to best manage and utilize curb space in cities. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michelle. It's great to be here. Great. Can you start uh, by telling us, for those who don't know, what Coord does? Sure. So we are on a mission to make mobility more seamless, and we're starting with the curb. Uh, what we realized is that nobody uh, really knows as much as you would think that they would about uh, what you can do at the side of the street. So where you're allowed to load and unload goods, where you're allowed to load and unload passengers, where you're allowed to park, uh, and how much you have to pay and how long you're allowed to stay there. So what we do is we gather this information, we help cities manage it, and then we help uh, the users of the curb, whether that's um, fleets, whether that's scooter or bike companies, really anyone, uh, understand better uh, how they can um, comply with the law, all with the goal of making transportation work better in cities uh, by making these uh, important uh, pieces of real estate easier for everyone to share. Great. Why take on this problem? Like, why did the curb become so interesting? So we started with a much more general mission of, you know, seeing how we can coordinate transportation, hence the name. Uh, but really, as we dug in, we realized that there were some very fundamental issues that we had to address as we got into this much bigger mission. And one of the issues was just that there wasn't as much data as we thought around some of the basic things we were trying to learn about. And the curb was probably the most glaring piece. So whenever you learn more about a problem space, you kind of realize just how deep it is and just how much there is there. So we realized that we could really build a whole business and focus a whole company uh, around this just very simple seeming problem of, you know, where the heck can I pick this person up? Where can I leave this, this machine um, on public space on a given day at a given time? So, so that really seemed to us like the most pressing uh, issue in the most pressing place that we could actually make a difference as a small company. So what does it take to map the curb space in a city? I mean, it seems so daunting. Like, what size segments are you looking at? Is it a block? Is it a parking space? How do you even go about imagining that problem? So what we realized is that there was really no shortcuts around this. What we actually do, we have an app that we built. It's an iPhone app, and it uses uh, ARKit, which is an uh, iPhone SDK for augmented reality, which tracks where your phone moves uh, in 3D in real time. Uh, the reason that we do this is because one of the things we're asking is how, how granular do you get? And we actually realized we needed to get within better than a parking space if you really want to figure out where the curb is because that's the granularity that people are making the rules. So you can't do that with GPS. So what we do is we have this app that uses augmented reality to measure your position relative to the corner. So you start at the corner and you walk down the street uh, and your phone tracks where you are using the camera and the accelerometer and the gyroscope and you get access to it using this AR technology. 
And that way, it lets us just walk the streets in the city and find out what's there. So if we see a sign, you take a picture of the sign. If you see paint, you mark where the paint starts and where the paint ends. A driveway, a crosswalk, we get all of this stuff just through this app. And then we pull it in and try and understand it um, you know, using the laws of the city and, and by reading the text and understanding what everything means. So that, those are really the two sides of it, is one, understanding the laws, which vary a lot city to city and state to state, and then two, understanding the assets that are on there using this app and, and by actually hiring people to go out and collect the data. And then we have a rules engine that puts this together and figures out uh, what the rules are of the curb. This is like Pokemon Go for uh, <laughs> for parking. That's Pokemon Go, we call it sometimes. <laughs> That's great. Wow. That is so... Uh, time and resource intensive to walk every curb on the city street, but I can see how there's like no other way to do it. What are the assets on the curb that you are most interested in and how do they vary from city to city? So we're based in New York and in New York City, it's all about parking signs. New York City's parking signs can be very complicated. Uh, They can have the names of a lot of different uh, city agencies on them. They can say all kinds of different things. So when we walk around in New York City, we see all the parking signs. Uh, but I'm actually today in California, as it happens, and out here it's all about the painted curbs. <laughs> um, it's all about, you see green paint, red paint, yellow paint, blue paint, white paint. Um, and so when you talk to city officials in California, the number one thing they start with is, can you tell us where our curb paint is? Um, and often where it's faded. One of the interesting things, because they don't necessarily have a record of this, someone will go and paint the curb outside their house. Maybe they have a handicap placard. So they'll just paint the curb outside their house blue. um, (laughs) And then nobody else will park there. So (laughs) It's a pretty good idea. (laughs) Well, and then it gets better because when that paint fades, because they're probably not using the the fancy uh, pavement paint, when the paint fades, they'll call up the city and say, hey, the curb paint outside my house is fading. (laughs) Oh, wow. So um, so you've got curb paint and you've got parking signs. Uh, what are the other items of interest? So fire hydrants are a big one, bus stops, uh, driveways and other curb cuts because you can't block them, obviously, when you park. And in some places, that's usually the biggest um, cause of parking space that's not used for uh, parking or curb space that's not used for parking rather Mm -hmm. Um, bike racks landscaping uh, curb extensions so this is often when the sidewalk extends out into the parking lane Uh, you need to know where those are Uh, and then there's also lane markings Uh, whether there's stall markings uh, uh, whether there's sometimes you have safety zones so there are diagonal slashes on the pavement Turn lanes, sometimes the only way that you know you can't park in a turn lane is because you see the turn arrow on the pavement. So that covers most of it. But then we always go to new places and we get surprised by things that we see. Fences (laughs) and collars. This is something they have in Europe that you don't see much of in North America, is there will be fencing between the sidewalk and the street, uh, or there will be a line of uh, bollards, uh, just like posts standing up between the sidewalk and the street. And usually when you see those, that means you can't park there. Oh, interesting. So um, when you're thinking about 
mapping the curbs in a city, um, who do you have in mind as a customer for that data? Um, who, who are the players who would care about that? So we think about this on two sides. On one side, we're thinking about the city and the people who work for the city. So this is both um, city employees and uh, architecture, engineering, and construction firms who often contract with cities. And what they're looking to do is plan the use of the curb so that it maximizes value for the city as a whole. And then operationally, maintain everyone understands what the rules are around the curb uh, as they're actually uh, intended. And then on the other side, we have fleets. So whether that's a delivery company, whether that's a, a TNC, whether that's a micromobility operator, all of these companies have big pain points around the curb, uh, mostly because they get parking tickets uh, or worse, they get uh, their vehicles towed, uh, depending on the company and depending on how they use the curb. So not understanding the curb can really hit them right in the pocketbook. Uh, not to mention there's increasing regulatory pressure on them um, as these you know, curb uses uh, rise in prominence, as you get more uh, TNCs, more scooters, more people shopping on Amazon and getting packages delivered to their house, uh, these curb uses, they start to snarl up traffic, uh, they start to uh, present safety issues. So you're increasingly getting regulatory scrutiny on these companies and they want to show that they're starting to be responsive to the city regulations. So what is the primary reason to map the curb so that cities can create regulations around specific pieces uh, of the curb at specific times of day? That's definitely a big part of it. The way that we think of it is about building a feedback loop between the city and the users of the curb. So right now, say there's a, a block in a city where the, where the curb is really snarled up, uh, where it's not being used efficiently. Maybe it's all designated for you know, resident car parking, but actually there's a bunch of businesses on the street, you know, and, and everyone's double parked all the time and it's a big mess. So the city can change the signage. But if the city does that right now, what they'll mostly get is a bunch of angry residents. Um, because people will show up on the street where they're expecting to find parking. And instead they'll see all these new signs or new paint or new whatevers. Um, and there won't have been any way for them to find out about that in advance. Because right now, the only way that you can learn about curb regulations is by going to the physical piece of curb that's being regulated. Uh, similarly, maybe there's a city that's creating uh, special pickup and drop-off zones for TNCs. The city of West Hollywood has an initiative called the Draw um, about designating pickup and drop-off zones for TNCs because they're a big nightlife area and this is a big issue for them. But how do the drivers know where these places are? So you can put all of these signs out but it's not going to affect behavior and it's not going to make the curb better used unless you have a way of building that feedback loop so that you can tell the users, hey, things are changing. This is where uh, we think you should go now and it'll make your lives better and it'll make our lives better. So it's both about helping the city figure out what the rules should be and helping them convey that information to the users so that they, this can actually change behavior. So how would that information be conveyed um to Uber and Lyft drivers, let's say there's a, a drop zone and the curb use has changed. I think they've done pilots around this in San Diego as well. How does that information, if, if you're able to capture it 
and the city makes a change and you can say, okay, guys, we have the latest info on the curb. Um, how does that get conveyed to companies? So there's, so we convey it to the companies like Uber and Lyft through our API. So they can uh, call us and we will in very quickly, in like computer time, not human time, uh, respond to them and tell them, you know, around this particular spot in the city, here are the rules. So there's this, you know, 10-foot area of passenger loading. There's 50 feet of uh, anyone can park there. And then there's a zone of no parking because there's, you know, a right turn lane or something. So, Or maybe there's a hydrant or a bus stop. So we'll, we'll tell them in the API exactly at a given place at a given time uh, who's allowed to do what where. And then they build that into their system uh, and that gets conveyed in a bunch of different ways. So there are lots of examples of these companies sharing information like this with their drivers in specific situations. For instance, in airports and near stadiums, Uber and Lyft already uh, send people to particular pickup and drop-off spots. Also, with services like uh, Lyft Line, where the companies are having people walk to points along a route, uh, the TNCs are already uh, working on algorithms for designating particular points for pickups and drop-offs that aren't necessarily right where you drop your pin. So by hooking our API into those algorithms, we think it's actually uh, going to be a pretty seamless way for this information to get to the drivers and to get taken into account when these companies are routing. And you mentioned that, um, you know, individual citizens in a city who might be going shopping in a neighborhood or what have you don't really have a way to know about changes at the curb before they get there. Is there any public digital record of the curbs and is that something you guys are creating? So that's something we're very excited to do and we're very excited to work with cities to make this happen. And there's a number of ways that we can do that. First of all, you know, if the city doesn't have the data, then they can't really do anything. So by working with the city to get the data, we're laying the groundwork. But then we're building tools. So we have a, a project called the Open Curb Asset Specification. So this is a data format that we've invented um, that tries to help standardize curb uh, the way that curb asset data, so that's where these parking signs are, where the curb is painted, and that sort of thing, standardize the way that that's shared across different cities. Uh, and because this is uh, completely open, and because we've also, we and our partners have uh, shared some open data that me meets the standard, this enables uh, app developers or really anyone who wants to start taking this data and turn it into forms uh, that people can use. And we can build a community around this kind of thing and see what makes the most sense for uh, getting this data out into the world. We thought about building a mobile app around this, but we decided that you probably have enough apps on your phone. And what we'd rather do is help lay the groundwork so that this data can get to you where you are already, uh, whether that's in a navigation app, um, whether that's on your city's website. Uh, we're not, we don't necessarily right now want to be the people, you know, showing you that on your phone, but we can build the ecosystem where that sort of thing comes up naturally. So that, your open curbs, that's uh, an open platform that is using a standardized format for curb data? That's right. One of the things that we realized is that nobody right now has even a data standard for the curb, which is just so interesting. 
there's GTFS is one of the great open data success stories, I think, in the civic space. Uh, just about every transit agency in North America, and in fact, even in the world, now shares their data in GTFS, which is wonderful for the consumers because navigation apps can pull that in no matter where you are in the world. Um, and it's also wonderful for the technology community because anyone can start doing interesting research uh, or building new apps or building new services based on this GTFS data. So we really wanted to foster something like that for the curve. And that's sort of where this comes in. The first step is the data specification, but then we do also, anyone who uses our tools to collect curb data, we let them very easily, with a push of a button, share this data um, in our data specification format, just as a way of helping them to get that out into the world. Yeah, I guess um, with the transit providers, they already had the data and they just had to put it into an open format that was the same so everybody could share it. It's a little more complicated with the curve because you don't have the data yet. And so it sounds like you're collecting data yourselves, but also allowing other people to collect the curb data and upload it into your format. Exactly. And one of the things that we realized also is that in the city, knowledge about the curb can be very fragmented. Often the agency that puts out the fire hydrants is different from the agency uh, that uh, permits people uh, to make curb cuts for their driveways, and that's different from the agency that puts out the parking signs. So you've got all of these different uh, parts of the city government with a piece of the curb, and that in itself is a challenge for building this data set. Yeah. Um, so... Is your standard for curb data um, that you're hoping will be kind of an open or universal standard, are there other standards that are competing with that today? Or are, do you guys have kind of the only standard on this? So as far as we know, we're the only people who've published an open curb asset standard. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of interesting standards work uh, around street maps more generally. Uh, we use a lot of... Uh, stuff from uh, OpenStreetMap, which is really great about figuring out where the streets are, all kinds of different information about uh, streets in general. But there's, they don't have a standard for this kind of curb data yet. And we kind of view what we're doing as complementary uh, to projects like OpenStreetMap. Right. So let's talk a little bit about policy um, and you know, how curbs are being used. Um, we talked a little bit about pickup and drop-off zones. Um, how do you think about use of the curb and, how, like, what the best way would be to um, sort of maximize, you, you know, utilization of the curbs? You know, is it... Uh, charging a fee when someone pulls up to a particular curb spot? Is it enforcing the time spent in a spot? How, how do you think about that? So the first step is exactly what you were just saying, Michelle, of seeing the problem as being maximizing curb utilization, which even that is something that people often don't think about, is how can we make this piece of curb as productive as possible for the city? But once you've done that, I mean, the first thing you can do is, is say, well, what, make, what uses make my curves more productive and less productive? Uh, we tend to think that um, free, unlimited duration car parking is one of the least productive uses of the curb uh, 
in almost any you know high demand area. Uh, because what that means is that the same car is going to be there for hours or even days, as opposed to that one spot serving you know potentially dozens of different uh, people and uses over that same time period. So, but then the question is, well, how, you know, what do you put there? Like what rules do you put there to make the curve as useful as possible? So certainly payment is uh, one tool that cities have, and it's a pretty good uh, sort of rule of markets in general that, um, that um, price is a great mechanism to allocate resources uh, to the people uh, who want them most. Uh, but of course, cities also have lots of other constraints that they operate under that might make that uh, less easy to do. One of the other things that we see around the curb right now is that the uses are getting shorter and shorter in duration. You know, it's very easy uh, to charge people for parking somewhere for an hour or two. Uh, just on the enforcement side alone, it's hard to enforce payments. Say you decided you wanted to charge people to drop off a passenger or pick up a passenger at a curb. How would that even work? Uh, you could imagine some ways of doing this with technology, but historically this just hasn't been an option for cities. So, yeah, figuring out how, wh whether it's just assigning pieces of the curb to different uses, whether it's uh, using some price-based allocation mechanism to do this more dynamically, we're really excited for cities to experiment with this and just to see what works uh, and, and what makes the curve as productive as possible. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about trying to charge people for pickup and drop off. Um, I think in San Diego, when they, you know, at night have made sort of these pickup and drop off zones near the bars, um, it's a time when they weren't charging for street parking anyway. And so they've cleared out the street parking and allowed people to drop off. Um, I don't know how they're enforcing, you know, a three minute, you know, zone or making sure that Uber drivers aren't sitting there for longer periods of time. Um, but it's hard for me to see how if you're just dropping off a passenger or picking up how you actually charge for that without creating some really negative incentives like the whole point of clearing out the curb and making it a pickup and drop off zone is because you want people to pull over, get out of traffic and, and, you know, pick up a passenger. And if you're going to charge them then for doing it, there's an incentive to not pull over to the curb. Right. Right. So yeah, that's, I don't, I don't know that anyone's uh, got a great answer for that yet. Uh, the place that people are starting to think a lot is about, uh, deliveries about uh, trucks and loading zones. Um, there are places, DC for instance, has a city permit program. So you have to get a permit uh, as a truck driver to use the loading zones. And that's a way that they can charge uh, for that space. Um, but what you really want if you're a truck driver is you want to know that the zone is going to be there for you when you pull up to it. So people have been thinking a lot about reservation systems where the, the delivery driver can reserve the space in advance and then use it when they uh, reserved it so that they'll know that, for instance, the space in front of the grocery store is going to be free when they get there. Because you don't want to, it's not, you can't just say, well, just park at the other end of the block because that can throw off your whole schedule if, you're, if you've got a whole semi-truck and stuff to unload. 
Yeah, it definitely seems like for larger trucks that would work. I think for the Amazon package deliveries to homes and apartment buildings and things where it's hard to know in advance and you've got sort of smaller trucks or hopefully someday uh, cargo bikes, um, you know, it's just harder to manage the volume uh, of those deliveries. Uh, But it seems like eliminating street parking in these downtown business districts and using some sort of curb management system uh, would really help with the traffic flow. I know from all of us who get stuck behind a a FedEx truck or whatever, who's double parked, it, it seems like managing the curb better would be an attractive use of city resources. Well, and, and trying to deal with double parking on its own is a very thorny and interesting problem. Because one of the things that FedEx and UPS, for instance, are trying to optimize is their driver time and just the time of pulling into a space and pulling out of a space can um, take up time in their schedule. So as your city, how do you think about making double parking expensive enough that they actually take the time to pull in a space even when one's there? That is a challenge that, that cities are starting to look into. Uh, New York City is just uh, in New York City. Double parking is legal in most of the city, most of <laughs> so so they're just starting to tackle this issue. They made it illegal in Midtown. Um, enforcement remains a challenge. Yeah. And thinking about for the rest of the city, well, what do you do? You know, is there a way that you can recognize? You know, we've got a we have narrower streets in New York. Um, and often they have uh, car parking on both sides, leaving only one travel lane in each direction, uh, or one in one direction if it's a residential side street. Um, so you kind of have to have double parking, but at the same time, it's incredibly disruptive. Right. Um, so one of the things uh, that I was talking to someone recently about who uh, drives for Uber was the idea that, you know, Uber drivers today might double park to let a passenger out because, you know, the passenger really wants to get out right in front of the restaurant. But what happens when we have fleets of autonomous vehicles who, you know, have instructions programmed in them to, you know, not not violate traffic laws and, you know, they can't stop where there's no double parking or, or can't pull over in a place where it's not legal. So it's kind of an interesting challenge. Um, how do you think about the curb as we move toward this potential of uh, automated ride services uh, with, you know, automated fleets in the future? So in that case, you do the math and you realize there effectively has to be a price mechanism to do this. One of the things I did early on in the lifespan of the company so you think about an office building, um, maybe, you know, an office building in a, a city that where most people drive to work. Um, maybe there's 3000 workers. Maybe they have a parking garage attached with, you know, a few, uh, like, um, a thousand space parking garage. Now imagine a world of autonomous vehicles where all those people expect to be dropped off by the front door, um, between eight 30 and nine 30 in the morning. And you can do the math and there's not enough time to drop all those people off. And we know what that curve looks like because we've all been to an airport. So you can imagine every office building 
in a downtown of a city becoming like the airport departures area. And nobody wants that. And that's kind of making everyone's lives worse. So you have to have some mechanism for allocating space uh, in front of destinations to different cars, even at this very granular level of within, you know, within a five minute window, once you start having autonomous vehicle pickups and drop-offs. Um, we don't really think about the parking lot as a place to you know, manage the space it takes to transition from being in a car to being on foot, but that's one of the purposes that it serves. So, so that kind of stuff ends up getting really complicated. And, and as I said, I think that, that ultimately pricing use of the curb and building sort of a, a traffic control system uh, for managing these autonomous vehicles, which you, know, you can do because they're all networked in together, is something that, that's going to start happening when these changes come around. Yeah. Are there, um, are there questions around privacy with respect to um, the curb and uh, how people are planning to manage the curb going forward? I know there's a lot of issues around data that cities are collecting, and I don't know if the data that you collect um, and how it's used would have any privacy implications. One thing I really love about our business now, I worked personally in online advertising before uh, coming into uh, mobility, and I was ready to be done with user data for a while. <laughs> so it's really great that we get all of this valuable data, and it's all data that's about infrastructure, that's not even about people, so there's no people to identify or anonymize. And it's, it's information that the people who are putting out there in the world want to be shared. The cities put out signs for people to read. They put out paint for people to see. So we have so much work ahead of us just in getting this infrastructure data out into the world before we even start dealing with the more uh, privacy-sensitive usage parts of the story. Okay. But we will have to get there one day. <laughs> and how can the data that CORD is gathering help with uh, micromobility and any of the issues around bikes and scooters in cities? So we're seeing a lot of movement around uh, sharing this micromobility data better with cities. Uh, this, of course, does have its privacy implications that we're, uh, thankfully, we don't have to address that right at the moment with our, our current business. But what we see is if you overlay the infrastructure data that we're collecting with the micromobility data that initiatives like the mobility data standard that they're building in Los Angeles, the data coming through systems like that, then you can really start to get a sense of are the uses of the curb in reality aligned uh, with how the curb is being regulated right now. Uh, and you can start to figure out, for instance, if you're citing designated space for bike or scooter parking, uh, where should that go? Uh, and what are the trade-offs there? What space is that going to take away? And how can you compensate for those uses uh, nearby in those areas? Right. Great. Are there... Um... Any other policies that you think cities should adopt that would really help move traffic and reduce congestion that you've seen as you have really kind of started to study cities and their curbs at this granular level? Well, I mean, I think when it comes to curbs, uh, trying to prioritize more productive uses and trying to price curbs appropriately, I mean, those two are huge. 
and we've talked about them already, but I do want to emphasize how great we think those things are for most cities. Then when it comes to, you know, use of pavement, I mean, I personally live in New York. I don't own a car, and I think that most cities should work to prioritize uh, their public transit systems uh, better in their transportation networks. Uh, but that's just me. <laughs> Spoken like a true New Yorker. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, I had a great time too, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again to Jacob for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.